hello. Welcome, everyone. Um, my name is Gary Simpson. I'm a research associate in the Human Rights Center and professor of international law here at the LSE. It's my great pleasure to invite you uh, this evening to the first of what I'm sure will be a number of exciting events at the Human Rights Center um, this year. I'd also like to welcome the wider audience that isn't here tonight but may watch this later. It's been streamed on various channels uh, after the event. Uh, in a month's time, we uh, commemorate the 60th anniversary of the end of the Tokyo war crimes uh, trials in 1948. But that trial and its twin at Nuremberg are remembered largely as exercises in victor's justice. And I think it's notable that neither of them led to the establishment of a permanent international criminal court. So for almost half a century, war crimes trials took place not at the international level, but in national jurisdictions, the Barbie trial in Lyon and the Eichmann trial in Jerusalem being two famous examples. The war in the Balkans and the end of the superpower rivalry changed all this, and the past 15 years or so have been marked by enormous enthusiasm and an explosion in interest of interest in the possibility of prosecuting human rights violators for war crimes, genocide, and crimes against humanity. War crimes courts have proliferated at an astonishing rate in Sierra Leone, in the Lebanon, in Phnom Penh, in Tanzania. But the real deal in this field has always involved the idea of a permanent international criminal court. A permanent court is referred to in the Genocide Convention, also celebrating its birthday this year of 1948. But the court itself, the permanent international criminal court spoken of in that convention, didn't come into existence until 50 years later at the Rome Conference in 1998 when the ICC was established after a decade-long struggle over the shape and jurisdiction of the court. One of the issues of contention uh, in Rome was about the extent to which the prosecutor of the ICC should act independently of state preferences and interests. Our speaker tonight, Dr. Louis, Louis Moreno Ocampo, is the ICC's uh, first prosecutor, appointed on 21st of April 2003. And it's fair to say, I think, that his tenure has been marked by a fiercely independent prosecution strategy, culminating in the charges laid against President Bashir earlier this year. This is all a piece with Dr. Moreno Ocampo's career as a prosecutor, a career which has been marked by the indictment of politicians, military leaders, and militia leaders, and also by the defense of Diego Maradona, he once told me. The, um, <laughs> the Bashir indictment, though, is an unprecedented moment in the history of war crimes, and the ICC is an institution without precedent. We are very fortunate to have its first prosecutor here tonight at the LSE. He'll speak for 40 minutes, followed by questions and a drinks reception. Please join me in giving uh, Dr. Uh, Moreno Campo an LSE uh, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much for this warm reception. And uh, thank you for the introductions. I'm very glad to be here. Um, and I will try to use my time to discuss with you what we are doing and some basic ideas about something that Professor Simpson mentioned. The idea, the world is evolving. Uh, 
in the idea to have a permanent court to do justice was presented in 1973 by Louis Gabriel Monnier, one of the founders of the, of the Red Cross, International Red Cross. And I like to quote him because for me it's amazing how this person, uh, more than almost more than one century ago, he was very clear. He said, a treaty is not a law imposed by a superior authority on its subordinate, but only a contract whose signatories cannot decree penalties against themselves since there would be no one to implement them. And then he concluded, the only reasonable guarantee should lie in the creation of international jurisdiction with the necessary power to compel obedience. So this idea was presented in 1873. As you know, the idea was not followed and uh, basically it was Nuremberg the first time after the failure after the First World War and as you know Nuremberg was the creation of the four countries who won the war and then UN ratified this idea nothing happened for 40 years then you have ICTY and ICTR who were critically important because the idea to have a global community was back and the idea, they also developed the law. But uh, in 1998, it's a transformation. And the transformation is that they, we went from an ad hoc system focusing on specific cases to the global system, focus a permanent criminal justice system. And that is the only point I'd like to make in addition to explain the cases we are doing. Because I think it's very important to understand this is a huge change in international relations. The law is a factor to be respected in international relations. And that is one of the interesting aspects of the court. And I like the idea to highlight this point. And I will try to use my time to explain this idea and also to explain what the court was doing in the last five years. And I would li like to do it in a short time to allow you to make comments and present questions. Um, Probably the best idea would be to, I have a short flash who could summarize this idea and then she will help me to present it. As you know, the Rome Statute was adopted in Rome and 120 states uh, agreed to pass this statute. Interestingly, you know, this idea was working for many years in the UN system. When they uh, arrived to Rome, and probably Professor Simpson could explain much better than me because I was not in Rome, I was reading this in the newspaper, uh, were more than 1,400 issues to discuss in Rome. And they had five weeks. However, they passed, they adopted the Rome Statute and they adopted this idea. 
I'd like to highlight they, the goal of the Rome Treaty is to end impunity for the most serious crimes of concern to the international community and thus contribute to the prevention of such crimes. So this idea, the idea is start to apply the law. It's not just a treaty establishing the law, it's also a mechanism to enforce this law. And the goal is to contribute to the prevention of crimes. The, what I'd like to highlight is that the most important aspect of this system is that basically it's a state system. It's not based in the core who has supremacy. On the contrary, the states remain responsible. And the interesting part is if the state fails to act, then they accept that the court will intervene. So it's a, it's a system of, it's a treaty plus a mechanism to monitor how the treaty is working. And the mechanism is the court. And the states fail, they accept that the court will intervene. And in addition to that, the state accept that they will support the court whenever and wherever the court decide to intervene. And in this sense, it's a treaty who established two different types of obligations. One is internal. Yes, UK signed and UK is committed to prevent and punish any of these type of crimes. But in addition to that, and that is the, the new thing in this system, is the UK is committed to support the court in Uganda, in Darfur, in Congo, whenever and wherever the court decides to act. And that is difficult. That's a challenge today. Because normally states are protecting their own citizens. They are not in charge of the other citizens. And you can see in Darfur case, very clearly, you see when the British teacher was jailed in Khartoum, an MP from here went there, and they released the teacher in a few days. So. UK has a responsibility to protect its own citizens. But what happened with Darfur is, what happened with Darfur is exactly what the Rome Statute was thinking, is what happened when the state itself attack its own citizens? Well, individuals involved in the state attack their own citizens. And that is the international community will protect them. The court will intervene, and the international community will support the court. That's the committee in Rome, and that's what we are today testing. Let me move, so I will go back to this. But this idea, I'd like to be clear, this is the goal of the court, and the most important part is, so it's not what happened just in the Hague. In fact, the most important part is what happened in the states, because it's a global justice system based in national state, working, applying the same rules, and to confirm they will work, it's one court intervening when they fail to intervene. So the point I'd like to make with this is, this idea is not based on what happened in the court, it's based on what happened in the state. And this is showing you how the state moved to ratify the treaty. And this showing the, the geographic representation and the timing, how it was moving. Okay? Access to the treaty is important because right now, the state who are joining us, they join us after they saw the court in operation. And Mexico did that, Japan did that. Uh, Chad did that, many countries around the world support. And that's the current situation. There are 108 states in the court, meaning all the Americas except US and some countries in Central America, 70% of Africa, almost all Europe, West Europe except Czech, who is also just passed the legislation, it's coming. Russia signed the treaty, did not ratify the treaty. 
Then you have Mongolia, Korea, Japan in Asia, and you have Australia and New Zealand. So it's more than half of the world. That's the current statute. So these states are committed to impose the law between them. And that is a new thing. In addition to that, when the Security Council referred to me a case, they call it a jurisdiction in all the world, not following the Rome Statute, following the UN Charter. So in this sense, the Security Council could provide with the universality that the law requires. In the meantime, we have a treaty ratified by 108 states today, not yet universal, but moving in the right direction. The trend is being, going to be universal. I'd like to add, the states also are adjusting their the legislation. Um, these are the states who implement legislation, uh, 47, and these are the states to agree on privilege and immunity. And both are important decisions, 53 states in this case. Important decision because the Rome Treaty say that the head of states have no immunity. So when they accept this law, the head of state would sign and said that they could be prosecuted. In Norway, it was interesting because the king of Norway, who is the head of the state, is above the law. So in order to Norway be part of the Rome Treaty, the king had to abdicate his own right, and then he decided, okay, if me or my sons are committing genocide, it's better that they are prosecuted. So in some way, the Norway story show, yes, it's an abdication of sovereignty to protect some values and integrating the system. And uh, this is for me the last point about the general view. The most interesting thing is the preventative impact of the court. And it's not just about cases. For instance, armies all over the world are adjusting the rules to the Rome Treaty. And this is probably the most important impact of the court. Be before I pre any other trial started, this is happening. And of course, this is a huge difference because the law makes a difference between a, a soldier or a terrorist, a policeman or a criminal. So the law is the difference, and that's what is happening today. Not just state parties, non-state parties are adjusting to these new rules. And even not just armies, militias are adjusting to the law because they are trying to avoid being prosecuted because a child soldier, so they are adjusting. So the, the law has an impact beyond the court activities. And that's why my first point about it's not just an ad hoc tribunal punishing people. It's not just about punishing. It's about the law, the impact of the law. And if I have one main point to make, is this. What the court is doing is not just punishing people. Okay. The, the, the Sarfur case, al-Bashir case, or whatever the cases, are just precedent who has important value beyond themselves. Because basically, a, child, a ruling on the Lubanga case will have impact on Colombia, where they are child soldiers, will have impact in Sri Lanka, will have impact on the world. And that is, for me, the concept we have to include in our mind. It's not just what happened in the court. It's what happened in the world. Because, in fact, how a tiny court in the Hague will change the world, just if the court is able to mobilize the state parties. And that's why, for me, it's important, this point, because I will do my work, and I will present my cases, but 
is important, but it will not be enough. We need professors, explain this concept, establish a framework, because it's a different framework, and we need a people, activists, moving this, explain this idea, implementing this law. So it's not just about the court. Uh, and let me be clear on this, because basically the law is based on the idea of a community. In UK, you have a community who are fighting, discussing. In fact, if you know, the idea, for instance, to prosecute kings starts here with the case against Charles I, and it's a good warning because, okay, you know, the prosecutor of Charles I was executed after, so <laughs> that's why life of prosecutors is tough. Um, but at the end, what it's inter when you read this book by, by Jeffrey Robinson, it's because what you see there is some discussion today, still valid, because the idea was how you can prosecute the king if the king is the law, the king is above the law. And this is the same idea when I heard this idea, how you prosecute the head of state. It's like they are above the law, no. But the discussion is still valid three centuries later. My point was, going back, is we need, normally the law represents the community. And, and the problem today is we have the global community without institutions. We have a global communication, a global business, global crisis, global economic and financial crisis, but we have, can we build a global community? Can we build global institutions? That's a challenge for lawyers. Can we offer to the normal people, to the business people, institutions adjusted to the global system? And that's why I believe the Rome Treaty is such an interesting model, because it could be a model, a model based in a network of states, accepting the same values, with an independent institution monitoring how the, the execution of the law is in different places. The compliance with the law is, 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 is implemented. So I believe that's why I believe the Rome Treaty is not just a very interesting idea for security and peace and justice. It's also important for as a legal, as a legal design in other aspects. And that's something I like to if you can put in your mind and start to think. L as, a, as a legal scholar, the legal scholars are are like uh, talking about 19th, 17th century institutions. And we have to talk, how the new world? How the 21st century institutions? And that, that's why I think, it's not just, that's why the, the Rome system is interesting. It's, not, it's, a, it's a criminal justice system with no specific territory, with no specific state, but with a global goal. And so it's different. And what to think on this, how it's working, and how we can describe. And probably you can, Uses, uh, use a similar method to describe other the, of these type of institutions. So let me, let me, we can discuss this point, but let me go to the operation. The first, my first challenge was when I arrived at the court was to start cases. And uh, there were two different fears in those days. One fear was the fear of a frivolous prosecutor selecting frivolous cases. The different, free, the different fear was at, when I was teaching at I was appointed when I was, when I was teaching at Harvard, and one of my colleagues told me, "Louis, it's a great honor, but you have to reject it." I was not thinking to reject it, so I think, "Why?" And he said, "Because it will be a shame for you. Because without U.S., how you will start the case? How you will investigate the case? How you will arrest a person?" So at the end, you will be nine years in The Hague, receiving a salary, and doing nothing. So that was the other idea. So free those cases or doing nothing. 
And at the end, selection of cases was very easy for us because basically we apply the law. And the law is pretty clear on this, how to select cases. But to take in consideration the jurisdiction, so the crimes are under, the alleged crimes are under our jurisdiction. We have taken in consideration the admissibility problem, including the existence of national proceedings and the gravity of the crimes, and then what the statute called inter of justice. These were the four criteria. We developed standards on this, and from those days, we just applied the law to select the situation. So it was easy for us to dismiss these cases that we present to you, because normally, in most of them, were different reasons not to take them on board. And we select these four cases. Why we select Uganda, Congo, Darfur, and Central African Republic? When I arrived, there were a lot of discussions about Iraq. Remember, I took off in 2003. So the problem is Iraq is not the state party. U.S. is not the state party, so I could not choose this type of cases. It was not in my jurisdiction. So in the, in the crimes committed in the territory of the state parties, the gravest were Congo and Colombia. And after Congo and Colombia were northern Uganda. But when we start to review these cases, these situations, we found in Colombia there were attempts to do national proceedings. There were national proceedings, not in northern Uganda, nor in Congo. That's why we start to analyze the cases in Congo and northern Uganda. And I announced one month after I took office, I announced clearly my policy to apply the standard, apply the law, and according to the law, Iraq is not my case. DRC, Congo, could be my case. And so what we collected information were in our, after 2002, were around 5,000 killings committed in Congo, and there were no national proceedings. So for us, it was pretty clear that we can start a case there. But then the idea of how to trigger the jurisdiction of the court came. Because as you know, the Rome system provides that we can use proprio to power, so select the case myself and start myself requesting the Peter Chamber authorization, or I can receive a referral. And what I used was I used the authority I have to select cases to invite the Congo authorities to refer the case to us. So in September 2003, in the Assembly of the Parties, I publicly invite the Congo to refer the case, saying I was ready to initiate the case using my proprietary power, but a referral will facilitate my intervention because we ensure more cooperation. And I, I did the same in a private meeting with the lawyers of Uganda, inviting them to refer to me the Northern Uganda case. And that was the way in which we select the two first cases. Central African Republic case came alone. The president of Central African Republic referred the case to us. And interestingly, and I think this was a breakthrough, because we were working in Uganda and in Congo, because we were opened the investigation in June and July 2004, in March 2005, the Security Council referred to us the Darfur case. And I believe this is a really important landmark for the court, because uh, in some way we're connecting peace and security with international justice for the first time. And I remember, for me, was I remember that in those days we, when we discussed these possibilities, one of my advisors told me, forget security cancer referral. In your nine years of tenure, you will see none of them. 
She, and she told me that at the beginning of my tenure. And she was right, I was wrong, that we could not get it. But interestingly, and that's something we had to learn, things are moving so fast in this area of international justice. Just in two years, the Security Council referred the case of Darfur to us. So uh, these are the four situations we selected. Then let me move to the cases. So we had to make a difference between cases selection and situation selection. So these are the situations selected. So we selected Northern Uganda, DRC, Central African Republic, and then Darfur was referred by the Security Council. These are numbers to compare the gravity. Uh, in the first column, you, s you have a report and lawful killings by situation, 2002-2008, maximum number. And then you see the gravity. You have almost 8,000 killings in DRC, 3.6 in Uganda, 220 in CAR, Central African Republic, 300,000 is the maximum number established by UN. It's very difficult to say how many people were killing in Darfur, but this is the number provided by UN. Then the next is reported rapes by situation, because killings is not the only crime. Rapes is a more, much more complicated number because normally it's not well reported. Killings are pretty well reported, rapes no. So these numbers probably are not representing the entire criminality at all, but these are the numbers. DRC, 1,500, Uganda, 157, and in Central African Republic, who has less killings than Uganda, has much higher number of rapes. So Central African Republic is a massive rape campaign. And in Darfur, it's not possible to estimate the number of rapes. And the last column to show gravity is the number of people displaced. And you have uh, 2 million in DRC, 1,300,000 in Uganda, and 2.7 million in Darfur. And I don't know if you understand the concept of be displaced. Uh, we, we never went to Darfur displaced camps, but we went to Chad refugee camps. And one story will present to you the problem they have there. Uh, we were there and suddenly a group of persons surround the car of my office asking them to, to help. And then three women came, approached the car and they dropped the babies through the window and they say, please, take my baby, go to Europe. So imagine how you can feel that you're ready to give your baby to someone you, got, you have no idea who is. And this is Chad, 10 times better than Darfur. So in this situation, they're living 2.5 million people for the last four, three, five years. So that's why we selected, we, in terms of gravity, we selected the gravest cases under our jurisdiction. Then, then inside the situation, we selected indivi cases, individual. A case is a incidents, individual responsible, and charges. So this is what the particular chamber is defining and we are following. A case is a combination of incidents, individuals, and charges. And my policy was from the beginning to prosecute those most responsible. And I knew 
because I knew when you investigate massive crimes, you have no chance to investigate all of them. And what we defined as a policy from the beginning was we prosecute the most responsible. And this was a policy, and that's what we did. We selected to investigate in, in Uturi four militia leaders, Tomás Lubanga, who is number one of the biggest militia, UPC, and Bosco Nataganda, the number three. We have no evidence against the number two on, on child soldier crisis. That's why we did not investigate, we did not prosecute him. We have Matthew Gucciolo, the number one of FRPI, another smaller militia in Ituri, and German Katanga, the leader of FNI. Three of them are in jail. Bosco uh, Nataganda is still at large. Then, these are the people, the, the five leaders of the LRA that we prosecuted. Joseph Coney, the number one. Vincent Otti, who was a very powerful number two, who was in charge of military operation, and he was killed by Otti, because, by Coney, because Otti was involved in the negotiation and Coney was distracting him. Okoto Diambo, that became, was the number three, now became the number two. Odiambo is interesting because he was a child soldier, he was abducted. So Odiambo is a killer and is a victim, both. Odiambo is a, is a, as the other, and Rascal Luquilla, both were children abducted and then transformed in killers. And Odiambo became today the number two of the organization. Rascal Luquilla was killed in a confrontation with the Ugandan army, and then Dominic Ongwen, who was the, the former number, in the, in the second level, four, and now is number three. And the, the, they, they are at large in Congo today, and talking about peace and justice, it's very interesting because uh, this group had a headquarters in the Sudan, escaping from Uganda. And because we indict them, Sudan agreed to arrest them. And then they, 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 they left Sudan and moved to Garamba Park in a very different conditions. In those days, Connie started to talk about he, he wants peace. And interestingly, we always say, they did the same for four years, four times. Four times Connie used the peace to, to stop their situation and regain forces, and he did it again. The, the, in the last months, LRA was abducting children in Central African Republic, abducting children in Congo, and abducting children in Southern Sudan. And he, sadly, he used the money that he collected in the Chuba talks to buy weapons and organize itself again, the group again. That's why you have to be very careful that the peace process are not affecting the arts efforts. Let me move to the next case is Champion Bemba, who is the leader of the MLC, a militia group from Congo, who, but we are prosecuting Bemba for the activities they did in Central African Republic. In 2002, 2003, Mr. Patase, who was the president of Central African Republic, called Mr. Bemba to support him and Bemba was sent his troop as a mercenary group to work in Central African Republic, and at the end of the campaign, they massively rape and kill people, and we prosecute him. Bemba is also in jail. Then we have uh, Ahmed Haroun, the Minister of Humanitarian Affairs, who was coordinating attacks against the village in Darfur, and Ali Kushid, one of the militia leaders who militia leaders who operate in Darfur. Ali Kushib was allegedly managing a group of more than 7,000, 10,000 people. So his group was 
double than Lubanga. But in any case, Ahmed Harun is a minister coordinate different people like Ali Kushir. And the last case we have is about al-Bashir. So these investigations, we are now going to trials. We have Tomas Lubanga. We have a decision of the judges to stay the proceeding. We can explain, discuss this if you like. Uh, but I think we are very, very, very close to solve this problem and move. Cheman Katanga and Martin Bujolo charges were confirmed. Um, and this, now, yes, we, we got the confirmation of this, of his char of the, the charges, and the trial will start in a few months. And Champion Bemba, the confirmation hearing will be on November 4. Last week we present the charges and we present, we disclose the evidence to the defense. In addition to that, we are working in, in the analyzing cases around the world. We're working in Colombia, Cote d'Ivoire, Chad, Kenya, Afghanistan, and Georgia. And for me, that's very interesting because this is the concept. We are not doing cases in this situation yet, but our work in the cases is promoting the respect for the law in the world. Examples of this, the, the general prosecutor of Colombia openly saying they are prosecuting cases because if not, I will do it. Russia sending communications to, the, to my office about crimes committed in Georgia. Georgian minister coming to, to, to see us to discuss what happened in Georgia. Uh, even the African Union Arab League talking about the, the convenience or not convenience to prosecute Mr. Bashir now. All this is showing that the political leaders of the world are now understanding that there is a law and has to be respected. And even... Um, Okay, I have. Ah. Even Mr. Sarkozy, in a, in a press conference in Georgia, a journalist asked him, Is Georgia genocide? And Sarkozy, from the top of his mind, answered, saying, This is a question for the International Criminal Court. And I like it very much because <laughs> we are in his mind. Uh, how to evaluate the work of the court is very difficult, it's early. That's something that I probably, London School of Economics could help. Uh, because we don't believe the court has to be evaluated for the number of trials or the number of defendants. Uh, because basically, a court based on complementarity cannot be evaluated by the number of trials because maybe no many trials is the right thing to do. So we are trying to, and also we are a little pissed in this effort to prevent future crimes. So we cannot be evaluated. Our, we cannot say we are the only reason to stop crime, but we are a factor. So that's something we have to learn. We are collecting information about crimes committed. And in fact, that's the next graphic I'd like to show you. Um, normally, in the four, in, the, in all our situations, the crimes are going, the killings are going down. Even in Darfur, after 2004, there are less killings. I would say, yes, in northern Uganda and in Congo, there are less killings, but it's still not stable. In Darfur, the attack changed the style. It's not a less, yes, maybe there are less bombing in villages and less raping villages, but it's also because there are less villages to attack. They, are, they, they, they remove people. But the problem is there are 2.5 million people in the camps and they are the victims, they are the target. So 
that fool is in according to Maya is a genocide today. And that's something we can discuss. How the world will manage an ongoing genocide. Um, yes. I was just presenting different moments with different leaders of the world where we're talking about the court. And for me that is interesting because it's showing yes, the court still before we start the first trial there are some impact in the mind of the leader, the, the political leaders. And that for me is the last point. The law is not just for prosecutors or, or judges. The law is for citizens, for military, for the armies, and for political leaders, because at the end of the day, they have to ensure respect for the law. And that is a challenge for legal scholars who normally were thinking in, in what happened in court. Normally, legal scholars thinking the problem starts with defending a right to the court, and then you start the criminal proceedings. In fact, for us, when the defendant right to the court, 95% of the problems are gone. What remains is, okay, what we know is legal problems, lawyer problems, but the arresting and investigating difficult circumstances is gone. So that's why I believe that you see the quest, a different approach to understand the, how the criminal justice system works, or how a criminal, a criminal justice system based in national states and a court working together could do something to change. So I think it's enough to present the idea. Uh, how to go back to the... You are the expert? Yeah. <laughs> no, I'd like to finish here. So I think I present to you basically the idea we're trying to implement, the policy we're trying to implement, and the operations. So, and your professors convinced me that the best part are, is your questions. So please, start with the question part, okay? Thank you for that. Um, we have uh, a little bit of time for questions, and I'll, I'll take the questions in groups of uh, two or three. Uh, just, just a piece of advice for those who want to ask questions. Could you wait for the roving microphone to reach you before you start speaking, and could you state your name and position? And also, we'd like them to be questions rather than statements or comments or speeches. So um, let's take uh, this gentleman up here. Yeah. No, 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 just, just in front of me here. Thank you. My name is Farouk Isa. I'm from Sudan, a former diplomat. Uh, my question is that today I read in the papers that Amri Musa, the Secretary General of the Arab League, was informed officially by the Sudanese Minister of Justice, Abdelbasi Sabdarad, that Ali Kosheb has been detained and he is pending, waiting for trial. Would you consider this acceptable or is it too little, too late? And uh, would, uh, would you also think that? Uh, is it a down payment for a loan that you could give to the Sudan government? Thank you. Thank you. Okay, I'll take a question just up here on the uh, far left. Uh, thank you. Tim Kello from the United Nations Association. Um, having seen recent photographs of yourself um, with a number of 
uh, Darfuris uh, protesting outside the UN General Assembly uh, last month. Um, I was just concerned whether, whether you had any concern. I mean, um, a lot of these groups had placards saying Bashir uh, is guilty of genocide, various things. Obviously, you've uh, recommended the indictment of him, but it hasn't yet been uh, agreed by the judges. Um, but I mean, are you concerned that yourself appearing publicly with Darfuris with these placards perhaps uh, allows others who, um, who support you need to uh, coordinate and, and indict various people the impression that it gives to them uh, over your independence one final question right at the back there yep no you yep um, hi, sir. My name is Judy Fu. I'm a student at the LSE and also part of the right here at the part of the um, ICC student network here. And we had the pleasure of meeting you last February, so it's great to see you again. My question had to do with um, oh yeah, yeah, maybe you can stand up. Uh, yeah. Oh, thank you. Okay. Um, my question had to do with your comment about the Rome Statute being uh, an important model for independent criminal justice. Um, but at the end of the day, the ICC is an independent criminal justice system operating in a larger anarchical international political order, and there's nothing that's more exemplary of this than the provision of the Rome Statute calling or allowing for a deferral by the Security Council. And in, refer in reference to the al-Bashir case, I wonder if, I hope there isn't, but if there is a deferral by the Security Council, how this is going to affect the ICC in the future in terms of its independence and whether or not that's going to affect the way that you personally behave as prosecutor in the future. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. On the first question, uh, in fact, the Sudanese say that they were investigating Ali Kushid in December 2006, before I present my case. And I sent a mission to Khartoum to, just to see what they were doing. And what we found is they, are investigating Gush they were investigating Kushiv, but not in connection with Harun and the, the plan activities. So what they are trying to do is deny the involvement of the state on the army, uh, on Harun, and present, oh, okay, it's just militia, tribal militias playing alone. That's why the case, I, I don't think they are doing the case, but in any case, the case has, it's not the same case we are doing. That's why I explain. The case for us, involve who are the individuals, the incidents, and the charges. And there is no identity between the Ali Kushib investigation and our case against Ahmed Harun and Ali Kushib working together in compliance with the plan organized by members of the government. So it's not the same case. That's why whatever they do will not be relevant. Uh, because Harun is still Minister of Humanitarian Affairs. It's not under investigation. The, uh, you cannot see a picture of me with a demonstration outside the UN. I'm sorry, this picture is not existing. So I don't know where this idea coming from. It's not existing. Uh, I met victims, but I also met Taha in New York that week. So, so Taha is, is, uh, is not in charge by the court. So I went to the Qatar embassy in the Prime Minister of Qatar, introduced me a person, I shake the hand. He told me, Mr. Taha, I shake the hand. And the next day, I was in a meeting with our foolish victims, who I think it's my duty to, to see them. But it was not in a demonstration. It was in a closed place. I was listening to the concern. And I think also it's part of my duty. So I was not in a demonstration. The 
point is, uh, it's a very good point, the point you make about the, that was for me the Rome Statute is so important, and the discussion on independent prosecutor, because you know, the biggest, one of the biggest discussion in Rome was the idea to provide the court and the prosecutor in particular with the ability to trigger cases himself or herself. And that makes a difference because without independent prosecutor, the court will be just a permanent ad hoc criminal justice system. With the independence of the prosecutor, we have to apply the law. So the law prevails on political issues. And and that is new international relation, but that, that's why the Rome Treaty has such importance. And I think it's interesting because it's working in real life. So we are, that's why I, I quote all these political leaders, we are now imposing the new limit. But that's why it's a difference between my work as the international prosecutor and when I work in Argentina, who is a pretty wild country, but in many cases, people understand the law has to be respected. In international arena, no. They believe the law could be not respected. And okay, I understand that, but my job is to apply the law. So we are in, in, in a change in time. That's why it's such an interesting time. But I think, yes, it will be difficult, but I think we'll do it. Thanks. All right, we've, um, let's go right at the back here in front of me, and then I'll move up there. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, my name is Joshua Rosenberg. I'm a freelance journalist. Um, you spoke um, in your talk about uh, the case against Lubanga, and you said it had been stayed. Um, and you issued a press release on this on the 24th of June, and you said the Office of the Prosecutor is highly confident that the problem will be resolved in the coming weeks and that the trial of Thomas Lubanga will start in September. Now, as you know, the trial did not start in September. Yes. Uh, do you think it will start, and if so, when? All right. Um, let's see. There couple of, what, one there and then one over there, just, just pretty close to each other. Yeah, yep, here. Um, yes, hello, it's Caroline Retzlack speaking. Um, I'm a, actually a former LSE student now, I'm at Cambridge University. I'm also with ICCSN. Um, prosecutor, I wanted to ask you regarding um, the reaction of the Security Council to your um, recent al-Bashir indictment and uh, what you reckon um, the impact of, those, of a possible postponement of your Al-Bashir indictment would be. Thank Thanks. you. And then there's a question just across the uh, aisle. Hi, my name is Noam Shimmel. I'm a student at the LSC. I have a question about how the ICC addresses matters of complicity in genocide, particularly with regard to the role of the French government during the 1994 genocide of the Tutsi in Rwanda, if you could comment on matters of complicity along with direct involvement in genocide. Thank you. Thanks. Okay. I'm really glad you're answering these questions and not me. <laughs> in fact, I was thinking the last question I will, I will give to you. No, don't, so be, be prepared, be prepared. On the first question, uh, I don't know how long, okay, I will try to explain this issue of Lubanga because for us it's a big issue. Lubanga is the first trial and the judges decide to stay the proceedings. And there are different moments. The first decision was based on the idea that the prosecutor was not able to provide to the judges the document that we, the prosecutor, considered were exculpatory. That's the reason. All the incriminatory evidence went to the, to the defense. 
some of the exculpatory information were, were not to the defense. Why? Because we received information under confidentiality. Article 54.3e of the Rome Statute established that the, that the, the institutions could provide information to us under strict confidentiality. And we have a duty not to disclose and not to, not to transform into evidence without the consent of the providers. Even we cannot give the information to the judges. And that is a big difference. In the UK and in many national jurisdictions, the judges can review the documents. And even in the ICTY, they can do it. In the ICC Roma Statute, there is no norm providing security to the providers that the judges will not disclose information. That's why I could not provide the information to the judges. What I propose to the judges is, look, I cannot provide you the documents, but I will provide to you the standards we apply. I inform you very candidly what are the documents we believe are exculpatory, and we are really, really using a broad uh, standard of what is exculpatory. In fact, we were far beyond many standards, and we were very open. That's why we have so many documents that we consider could be exculpatory. But in fact, none of this exculpatory value was very important. And basically, also, we provide to you judges analogous information. Because the articles say, at the 543EC, say, we have to use this confidential information to lead into evidence. So we can we use this information to collect evidence. And then we provide analogous information. But the judges say, prosecutor, whatever the status says is OK, you, you can keep your confidentiality. But if you say you have exculpatory documents, we like to see the documents. We say, we cannot provide the document, but we can provide, you can review the standards we use. We can review the analogous information. We, re we can review the solution we are providing. And that is a discussion with the judges. So we say, yes, we agree fair trials require the judges are the final arbiter of what is disclosed to the defense in terms of exculpatory, but we request to them to review our standards. And they say, no, we'd like to see the documents. Then they stay the proceedings. Because they were saying there are no prospect that the prosecutor will give us the documents. Because the first discussion we appeal, we are in, in the appeal chamber. But then, in some way, we, the decision helped us to convince the providers, please give us a consent, because if not, we have really a problem with the judges. And then we use this, and we convince the UN in particular to provide the documents. And then they agreed. They agreed on two aspects. Now we are in conditions to provide to the judges all the documents so they can review all the documents. And in addition, they, they were in UN had uh, 156 documents that they don't like to disclose to the defense. To, they, they refuse to provide consent. And now they agree in 136. So 90% of the documents now don't need to be reviewed by our can be disclosed to the defense, so the problem is finished. And we are still reviewing this number. We are going down from 15 to 2, probably. And then with this in the hand, we say, okay, this time, that's why I was thinking September could be great, because we, we, we got disagreement with the UN. In fact, we comply with the first decision of the judges, and then we say, okay, now we are ready. And then we present. But the judges say, thank you, prosecutor, it's true, you comply with our first decision, but we believe it's not enough because they established two new conditions. First is the information had to be available to the appeal chamber. And the UN is refusing, because the UN is requesting the judges to take to decide to take an undertaking 
that they will not disclose to the defense. And the third chamber did it, but the appeal chamber did not yet, because the appeal chamber did not intervene yet. So the chamber is requesting that the appeal chamber receive the documents in a similar way. And the UN say, but they, if, they, if, they have, if they take the same position, yes, if not, no. So that's one issue. The second issue is the appeal chamber is saying, the, sorry, the trial chamber is refusing to stay the proceeding because they say they have to be a guarantee of a real prospect that the defense will receive any document they want to give to the defense. And we say, okay, look, fair trial is not including that all the documents are disclosed to the defense. In all the jurisdictions, even in the European Human, in the European Court of Human Rights, they are, document, they are not going to the defense for different reasons. For, because they announce information, because security issues, or different reasons. So we are challenging this aspect of the court decision, saying, look, it's not true. Fair trial is not including the concept that all the documents have to be true to the defense. You have to review the documents and decide. So this is a new situation now. So we request a stay, leave the state of the proceedings, and the judge, based on these two aspects, the appeal chamber having the ability to review the document and the guarantee to disclose all the documents to the defense, uh, are refusing. So we appealed yesterday, you can see in the web, we appealed this new decision and the judges grandly leave for appeal. So it's, in fact, the situation now changed. It's no more about 543E because it's gone. Now they got all the documents. Now it's simply about if, the, if, they, if they can, we, we submit that it's totally hypothetical, this issue of the appeal chamber, because maybe the appeal chamber does not like to review the document. They just review the decision of the trial chamber. And then it's impossible to consider its fair trial not to review the document because it's affecting, the, in fact, fair trial for victims, fair trial to the prosecutor, to refuse to review the document because maybe the appeal chamber cannot see the documents. In addition, we are submitting uh, that uh, the appeal chamber is a master of its own proceedings. So I say, please, trial chamber, let the appeal chamber decide if the scope of the, of the appeal is, 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 is okay or not. And so I don't know if you understand. I, I was working on this for, <laughs> for the last three months, so I'm, I'm not sure it was very fast. But okay, the bottom line is the two legal discussions on this, and it's basically about applying a new law, and that's why it's complicated. But operationally, we find a solution because the UN is considering, and probably tomorrow, will provide the final, the final um, decision that they will agree, I will offer them some guarantees, and they will agree to provide information to the appeal chamber. And this is a condition that the, the trial chamber say, if you, can, if you got this, we'll review the document. So to avoid new problems, I will not say when the trial will start. I don't know when, but I'm pretty sure that now we fulfill the conditions. I'm pretty sure as soon as the judges review the documents, they will find at the end there is nothing there. There is nothing. So I'm pretty sure as soon as the trial chamber sees the document, the problem will be solved. And then finally, we go ahead with the trial. And to summarize this point, I think at the end, I, I disagree with, in particular with the second decision, strongly disagree. But I believe at the end of the day, it will be good for the court. Because people understand that this is a court of justice in which the most important thing is the legal issues. And fair trial is the cornerstone of the legitimacy of the court. And then whatever problem we had, and we had problem with this, and we affect in some way this, it's important the court is showing is serious about 
respect the right of all the parties. And I think in terms of establishing the legal foundation of the court, it's a very important decision. So it's very important, and I suppose we solve the problems and we go to trial. Then let me go to the Security Council. Interesting, Security Council has two decisions on justice. First decision is Resolution 1593 in March 2005, and they decide, Security Council decide, for peace and security in Darfur, we need justice. It's a Security Council decision. The second decision is not a Security Council resolution. It's a presidential statement. You know, presidential statements are decisions, not a decision, are declarations of the 15 members of the Security Council by consensus. And they issue one in June 2008. So three months ago, the Security Council confirmed the need to do justice in Darfur and the need of the Sudanese government to cooperate with the court. These are the only two decisions taken by the Security Council, nothing else. And it's nothing in the agenda of the Security Council to discuss something different. So you got to discriminate when you read in the newspaper there information that was not exactly what is happening there. In any case, any Security Council resolution is in the hands of the Security Council, so it's not my activity. I have to be clear, I have a judicial mandate, I apply the law, and I got evidence. That's my job. I cannot be involved in negotiations or in political decisions because it's a good council decision. And yes, Professor Simpson will answer the issue of complicity <laughs> on genocide. In the future, in the future, and if not today because it's my conference, in the future, yeah. my lecture. So. It's, it's actually week four of my course on international criminal law. So. Yes. But, um, uh, yeah. yeah you, you, you. No, no, to say something. If you see my genocide case against Mr. Bashir, it's just one person. And we use a model of liability who is in the Roman Statute to establish using another person. And it's something coming from the, the, the sources in the German uh, ju jurisprudence also, but basically it was a theory developed in Germany after the Second World War, trying to develop a theory to show how this crime could be committed using the state apparatus. And they use the idea to some people who control an organization can commit the crimes through the organization. This theory was applied, in my case, in the Junta trials in Argentina by the chamber, the trial chamber, but the Supreme Court changed this aspect of the decision using a normal mode of liability. So there are a few precedents, some in Germany, some in Argentina, no more, but this idea was incorporated in the Roman Statute, it's there. It's quite similar to giving orders. I don't think it's such a big difference I had to prove Mr. Bashir controlled the organization who committed the crime. That's what we proved. Also, we could prove that Mr. Bashir gave orders, but because the first is through others, we did, we used this mode of liability. And then we are not talking about any, compl no complicity here. We are just talking about one person using the organization to commit the crime. That's why I cannot answer on this. On this, on my case of genocide, I had just one person. No one is charged with complicity. In the Rwanda and the complicity in Rwanda, he will answer you probably next week. No? Well, well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to ask a question since I'm not going to give the answer to, the, to this particular question. And a, two, two questions. One, one oh. is, yeah, two questions. Um, one is an absolutely standard criticism of the court, which you'll have heard a hundred times, but I still want your answer to it. Uh, Richard Falk, a famous uh, human rights international relations lawyer, said that the problem with international law is that it flows from north to south. And, and one of the criticisms that's being made of the ICC in the circles that I move at least is that, is that 
there's been too much attention on Africa and not enough attention elsewhere. So I'd like to hear your, your response to that. Um, and the second question is more of a sort of Jonathan Ross question, really. Uh, 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 there's a, I think there's a law of unintended consequences in, in international criminal law. You never quite know how these rules or norms are going to play out. Uh, Adolf Eichmann didn't know someone was going to arrest him in, in the streets of Buenos Aires in 1960. Pinochet didn't know when he came to London to have tea with Margaret Thatcher that he would be subject to extradition proceedings. Um, I wanted to ask you what the most unexpected thing that's happened to you or at the ICC while you've been a prosecutor uh, uh, has been. And what, what's happened that you couldn't have predicted when you took up the role? Okay. You see the answer of the professor excusing himself to answer the question, <laughs> trying to, it's an old trick. to attack the professor. Yeah, the trick is so obvious. Okay. <laughs> um, it's such a North prejudice this idea of the law coming from the north to the south is such a north prejudice guy. I am Argentinian. In my country, 30,000 people were killed without any right. That's why I will die to protect the right of defense. So, right, it's my right. It's my interest. And if you see the wrong treaty, Africa lead, South America lead, Europe lead, because the three regions suffer. So, come on, guys, stop this idea, this stupid prejudice. The law is in your hands, and we are the, bas the, the barbaric who need to be educated. We are. We like to apply the law. That's what we like. That, that, that's the last time I'll ask that question. <laughs> good, good. Uh, the second is about predictability, and that is uh, one of the issues. The law basically organized collective action. So the law had to be predict the actions under the law had to be predictable. And because we are establishing the law, it's, it's difficult to predict. That, that is a conflict we have with this type of and I would say I would change a little your question because what I did I, I cannot adjust to political consideration. I cannot take in consideration the political environment because then I'm not the prosecutor. And in fact I will tell you it's impossible to do it because political concession change all the time. And then if I try to follow, I'm dead. So I have to be a prosecutor, I have to play the law. So what I'm doing, I'm trying to be predictable, informing in advance what I will do to avoid surprises. And then that's why in December 2007, I was very clear, I will prosecute, I will present two cases in Darfur. One, again, those who are attacking the people in the camps. I know Harun is there doing the performing a function on this type of crime, but also someone is, Harun is not alone, I said. Someone is instructing him, someone is protecting him. And I said that publicly. And also I informed publicly that I will do a rebel case, I'm going to do this case in, in, in the coming weeks, before the end of the year. So I'm going to be predictable. It's enough? No. Something I learned is very interesting. A few weeks ago, someone told me, but why you did not inform us in advance that you are doing Mr. Bashir? I said, but I informed you in the Security Council briefing. I said publicly I will do someone instructing Harun. Yes, you say that, but we not, we not believe you. So, <laughs> we're surprised. So, that's part of, of the reality. So, I'm trying to do the best I can to be predictable and to be clear. Uh, 
uh, but sometimes people are following all paths. That's why I need frameworks. I need professor explaining this new framework, and that will happen. Good, good. What a challenge. All right, I think we have time for some more questions, uh, at least three more, and we'll see how we go. Um, right down here in the middle, and then we'll move upstairs again. I've been pretty fair to the upstairs lot, so, yeah. Thank you. My name's Andy. I've worked in Dark Force since 2004. Um, and my question is about the predictability that you just uh, mentioned. Um, you mentioned the Askanita case. I assume you're talking about the attack in the African Union. Um, are there going to be other uh, attempted prosecutions uh, against war criminals in Darfur other than the three or four cases that uh, are clear at this point? Okay, there's a question right at the back there on the left. Hello, um, my name is Ian Anderson from the Campaign to Make War History. And uh, you said that the law is not just for legal advisors, prosecutors, and defense councils. The law also applies to political leaders, military, and negotiators. If that's true, would the refusal of the United States to join the International Criminal Court be objective proof that they know there are international criminals in the United States? <laughs> and then just, again, just across the aisle, Thank you. Professor Jerry Simpson in his book, War, Law and Crimes, has stated that war crimes are engulfed in a plethora of relationship between politics and law, local justice and cosmopolitan accountability. Your uh, uh, approach seems to be highly influenced by cosmopolitanism in sharp contradistinction uh, contra to regionalism. I want to argue that why don't you activate your doctrine of positive complementarity to uh, activate the role of regional mecha uh, legal mechanisms uh, with the, that is to say to move from the criminal homicidal uh, retribution to, restri to restitution for example you focus on the on the criminal perpetuator you take him to court you uh, imprison him for life this would not solve the situation on the ground what about the rights, the economic rights of the victims? This is why if we approach uh, the problem from a, a restitutional concept and economic rights that, for example, in case a rich state has been involved in committing crime, they should be compelled to pay compensation, dearly compensation to save themselves if they need be. So within this doctrine, how can you approach the problem in Darfur? Would you seek to enshrine the legal uh, crimes in the Sudanese criminal law? Would you let, for example, reconstruction in the criminal justice in Sudan to take place, to retrain justice and magistrates, and to take international legal advice? Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Um, in order to be predictable, I inform in advance my cases, and I inform in December two cases I did Bashir in June I informed in July I would move and in July I move it and also I will move my third case before the end of the year and after that I will evaluate what else we have to do normally we are very focused doing few cases because I believe this is a court of few cases 
and what to learn how to maximize the impact. So I have no answer to your question, but maybe in December, read what I say to the Security Council because maybe we can present a policy there. On the US, look, I respect national states when they join the court and when they don't, when, when they not integrate, join the court. So ask them, it's not mine. On this issue of cosmopolitan against regional, I came from Argentina. I was a prosecutor in Argentina against the top commanders in 1985, who I would say is the original. After Nuremberg, was the first trial after Nuremberg. So it's, it's, and it was a pretty national case, was not even regional case. So I believe the best idea to do national proceedings, that's why I like this idea of complementarity. But sometimes it's not possible. So that's why we need the court. Because in Argentina also, the international influence was important to allow us to do the national cases. So I don't believe it's one against the other. It's how to play together. And in fact, I was promoting regional interventions because I know the importance of regional interventions. Talking about this north-south problem, come on. You know who, was, who were the two national authorities invited to the African Union meeting in Gambia two years ago? Two presidents. One, Mr. Chavez the other, the Prime Minister of Iran. So, and in South America, there was a problem in Haiti, and Canada was offering a battalion to help. And the South American countries say, no, you are from the North. And Canada say, no, we are the good from the North. No, no, no. <laughs> you are from the North. So of course, it's a huge prejudice. But uh, in any case, that's why regional organizations have a huge challenge. And I will tell you, I was working very close to African Union in, in, in Burundi, in Congo, in Cote d'Ivoire. I am working very close to, to OAS in Colombia case. So I'm trying to involve them as much as I can. And in fact, I was visiting African Union and Arab League on Darfur for the last two years many times. And so I'm working with them and I need them. And I, I agree with you, there will, no, will be no solution for these cases without the involvement of the regional organizations. On the second aspect, the economic issue, okay, that is, it's, diff it's, it's huge. I understand there are links between civil rights and economic rights, but I'm a criminal prosecutor investigating genocide, crime and war crime. That's my work, and that is the law, that the law will apply. The only link, something interesting in our court is that the victims can request compensation, not to the state, but to the defendants. And uh, interesting, in the Bemba case, Bemba is a rich man, we froze houses, accounts, and even plane. And then the, if Bemba is convicted, victims could request compensation from Bemba money. So that is, a, is the aspect that the court has that have to be discussed because I see here some possibilities that people apply a different concept because this idea to compensate the victims in the, in the criminal cases came from the civil law countries. And normally, individual victims request compensations, but here we have a massive number of victims. So I'm not sure if it makes sense to give compensate individual people with, with money for themselves. Some of them need, because some of them have HIV, so they need treatment, or there are many cases in which uh, women raped were um, marginalized, and even the kids could not go to the school. So maybe there are 
solution for individuals or social solution. Maybe the judges have to learn how to compensate the communities, how to promote all the other type of solutions. And it's a huge area in which no one is talking about this. So I will invite you to try to discuss with the, ju the judges in the Bemba case we decide. So you have to start to present how to combine this possibility that the Rome Treaty offer and this economic and social situation on the, on, on the ground. And I think it's important. But, but for the concept is harmonized. Not the, it's not a competition. It's, it's possible to harmonize it. Okay, the prosecutor is appearing live on the BBC just after 9 o'clock. We want to get him to uh, a reception with all of you in the atrium. So I'm going to, going to take two very quick final questions from the floor here. Sorry, up there. Uh, there's one right wow. in the middle there. And please do make them quick. Hello, my name's Helen, I'm from the College of Law, I'm a bar student. I'm interested to know um, uh, what are the challenges that you have in gathering evidence? Obviously, you're working with the states, um, it does take time to gather evidence, um, but how do you actually gain the cooperation of the states to assist you? Thank you. Final question, apologies to everyone else who has their hand up. Yep. Uh, my name is Marcin. It's a huge responsibility. Before you talk, be careful. You represent 300 persons here. <laughs> Go ahead now. Uh. <laughs> my name is Marcin. I'm a training solicitor. I'm interested in how you see the development of the ICC's jurisprudence as an autonomous legal order, both as applied in national courts and its ability to have the enforcement of arrest warrants uh, as issues to actually bring people before it. Can you repeat the first part? The enforcement, I understood the first part, I did not. Uh, the, the enforcement of it, the norms coming from the ICC in national courts, Yes. as well as the uh, enforcement of arrest warrants issued by, by other institutions. Okay. Okay. Gather evidence was a big problem for us because first we are investigating massive crimes. Massive crimes are committed by massive number of persons. So how to focus investigation because it's easy to collect a thousand of statements from victims but how to connect this with criminal responsibility. In addition to that there's a normal problem in massive crimes. We had in 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 Congo Okay, in, in Uganda we had a problem that was ongoing violence. In Congo we had ongoing violence plus no government because in, in Ituri there were no state. And in Darfur we have massive crimes, ongoing violence, not just no state, members of the state committing the crimes and then we cannot even go to Darfur. That's why the, 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 the different type of problem we had. And that's why I believe I'm very proud of my investigation team in Darfur because we were the first international criminal court who investigate this type of crimes without visiting the crime scene. The good thing is we received the information from the uh, UN Commission of Inquiry. That was very good for us. But then what we did, we tried to select, the, to follow what are the possible witnesses of the crimes then we identify 600 persons in 18 countries. We identify a 
according with the time and the place that some of them were more useful for us so we in the five of the 300 hundred so we took 100 testimonies and for us it was one would allow us to go to the first Harun case and in fact see how we combine the information Harun was identified in the organization of, of the of the state as the person in charge of the coordination of the of the activities in Darfur. Harun was the Darfur security desk. His formal role was to coordinate the activity of the army and the police. The, the, the UN Commission of Inquiry provided us security, community, security committee uh, minutes allowing us to understand how the security, how the security committees were coordinated, coordinating activities and reporting to the state security committee who report to Harun. So we have a clear chain of command and we see his role. But in addition, we collect witnesses who saw Harun in three different states providing weapons in his own, uh, delivering weapons in his own helicopter. We have a witness who saw Harun in two different places paying cash to the Janjaweed militia. And we have Harun in different places inciting to commit the crimes. In particular, in Mukjar, where Harun said very clearly, he said, because the sons of the fool became rebels, the fools and whatever they had became booty for the Mujahideen. So he incited the Chanchewi leaders to attack Mukjar. Ali Kushib was there, and the next day Ali Kushib forces attack Mukjar. And on Ali Kushib, we collect eyewitness who saw Kushib commanding these four attacks involving the killings of some group of people, involving the, in the torture and rape of a group of women, involving different activities. And we can combine information. One example of how we combine, we have one witness who say, I saw Mr. Kushib in the horse. He was blowing a whistle. I have no idea why he was doing that, but what, that's what he was doing. And we collect other information coming from a former Janjawi militia who say, they were trained and they were receiving instructions through someone who would blow in a whistle. So we combined information and then we have a strong case against Kushib commanding the attacks, four attacks, and we have a strong case against Harun involved with Kushib, managing the people formally and informally. And this was the second case. And in, Kush in Harun case, in Bashir case, I cannot give you information or the evidence, but we have even stronger evidence. So this is the way we were conducting information. So basically, is to be clear, we had to be focused, we had to collect information about, not just about many crime-based witnesses, we had to collect information about who are responsible and how to connect them. Uh, that is the way we are doing. But this is one of the most difficult parts of the investigation. Of course, it's crossed by a lot of security problems. For instance, we were investigating in in Chad and then we decided not to go to the camps, not to expose the witness and also to protect my investigators. So we decided to move the witness from the camps in, from some place in Chad to Abeche, who was a safe city in Chad. And then we moved the witness, we had to move the witness individually, so it was difficult to move them in places with no, no ways, with no roads, so we moved them. And then my investigator arrived to, to Abeche the safe place. And the next day, for the first time, Abeche was taken by the rebels. So I had to run 
to rescue my investigators and protect the witnesses. So this is part of the work. In addition to that, we have to respect the, the witness because they were traumatized. So they tell us incredibly sad stories. And for instance, a man told us they raped in Darfur. They raped my daughter, eight-year-old daughter, and they forced me to watch. And I was asking why. Uh, but at the same time, and that's something very encouraging for us, the victims are very proud to, to meet us. The victims are very proud to tell us their stories. One story I have is a girl in Uganda, she was raped, she had a baby, and then she was uh, interviewed by, for three days by my investigators. Uh, at the end of the third day, when my investigators said, okay, if we finish, the girl started to cry, and she could not stop. So my investigator felt very guilty and said, I'm so sorry, but it's my duty. I had to do this question to you. And the girl said, don't worry. I'm not sad. In fact, this is the happiest day in my life. No one paid so much attention to me than you today. So this is what's happening also in this interaction with the victims. No? The, we are basically... Um, helping them because we are transforming their stories into evidence so in some way we are empowering them because we are, use, you, we are recognizing them, we are trying to respect them and we are using the information as into transforming into evidence and I think that is an interesting process that what we are doing in the investigation and basically my investigators feel it's very difficult to go to the ground, it's dangerous but at the same time you feel Yes, we are doing what we have to do. On the last point, ICC and national... I see, for instance, in Congo, the judges are using a lot, the ICC statute. There is not so much jurisprudence yet on the crime, so that's why it's difficult to, to say, but I would predict, yes, probably the ICC jurisprudence will be important when you analyze this type of crimes. And enforcement is something I think we have to will be developing time because basically all by treaty all the police and all the armies of the state party have to follow the order of the judges and it's something will be more and more um, in some way we are a still very primitive system but will evolve uh, I normally I like this story about uh, President Jackson, who you don't know, in 1930 was this problem with the Chiro Georgia passed a law affecting the right of the Cherokees to their own land, and the Supreme Court decided that the, the, the Georgia law was against the Constitution. And Georgia refused to follow the decision. And then the journalist asked President Jackson what you will do. And President Jackson said, the Supreme Court decided they had to enforce the decision. Interesting, no? It's the business. Two, almost two centuries later, the, the last president of the U.S. was appointed basically by the Supreme Court. So it's showing compliance is growing. And I think the same, <laughs> the same will happen in international area. Thank you very much for your question.
Can I, can, I, can I just ask everyone to remain seated while, while I take the prosecutor out? But first, I, I want to thank him for an absolutely terrific presentation. It's not every evening that I'm outed as a Northist. That, that, that occurs to <laughs> um, no, I feel completely exposed. But more to the point, it was such an illuminating, impassioned, and candid tour of the international criminal law scene, and we are deeply grateful that you came and, and gave us that presentation. Thank you very much. Thank you.